Uh, before I get underway today, just a couple of things I want to highlight. Don't forget we have an app, and in the app there are notes and all sorts of other things in the app you can follow along with. But uh, also in the notes at the end are follow-up questions. And so if you're in a regroup, and they're going through maybe like the study of Ruth right now, you can use those questions. Uh, Or if you just want for your own personal reflection to do that, that is fantastic. And that's going to be true to the next series that we're going to do. So the next series we're going to do for eight weeks is called Crazy Stuff Christians Should Do. All right, and we're looking at eight different things that is critical for our spiritual development, for our ability to be uh, thoughtful, wise missionaries in our world and to represent Jesus well. We're going to look at these eight crazy things that all Christians should do. And if you want to, in the midst of that series, all of our regroups, our small groups that Trent was just talking about, uh, they're going to be going through that series as well. And if you really boil down the series, it's just the eight things that we should have as a regular part of our Christian diet so that we grow. Because that's the most important thing in the Christian life. It's growing closer to Christ and more like Jesus and what that looks like for our lives. And so that's what the series is going to be about. So it's awesome that we're starting it in a pub next week. That's going to be fun. We're going to have regroups also starting up. So if you'd like to join into a regroup, you can let us know about that. We'll get you hooked up on that as well. Even some digital versions for regroups, just because we know that we're still in that space right now. And that's how it's going to work out. But I think that's going to be a great series. The other thing, and this is something you can certainly be praying for, and we're certainly hoping will transpire, uh, that we will actually be in the school sooner than later. So we're already being, have been in interaction with the district. It looks like this is something that may even come in October. So while the pub and the hub and the net's all going to be fun, the school will be fun too. So we're hoping that that's going to happen maybe like the third or fourth week of October. That's what we're kind of pressing toward right now. And so hopefully that's going to come about. So good stuff going on there as well. New series, everything else. Just things are fresh and new right now. So that's going to be great. With that said, though, we are in the book of Ruth right now. We're finishing out. Chapter 4 is where we're at today. We're going to wrap it up. But as we do this, I want to go ahead and pray for us, especially with the topic of the day, because I'm finding as I go through something like this story that what it takes for us spiritually is a great deal of wisdom. It's not as simple as just like find the rule and make it apply, but really how we find the rule and then find wisdom in the context of that. And then we bring God's love and grace and generosity to bear on the environment we're in. That's the stuff of wisdom when it comes to the Bible. And that's what we're learning in the study of Ruth right now. So if you will join me in prayer, that would be great. And then we're going to get right underway with stuff. So let's go ahead and do it together. Jesus, I thank you for your word that doesn't simply challenge us, but it grows us. It stretches us beyond our boundaries and forces us to maybe wrestle with things at a different level and then figure out how we can be literally this Hebrew word we've seen in the book, this idea of hesed, how we can embody hesed in our world. And so I ask, I plead, I beg even that we will become uh, just great practitioners of what that looks like because Jesus, it looks just like you. If there's anything I've been marked by in this little study of this simple story is how much that it mirrors you before you came into this world. That it is the essence of your gospel and your kingdom in the life of just unlikely heroes. And so I pray that we would learn from that today and from that we would live that out and from that we would make a difference in this world. Not according to the rules of the world, but according to the rules of your grace and your love that changes the world. And so help us to do that. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity we have today. And we look to you now in your good name. Amen. So perhaps you've seen the meme or the bumper sticker or the t-shirt or the coffee mug. I've seen it in a number of places. It's a very simple quote that probably you've run across. 
It's this idea that well-behaved women seldom make history. And this has been attributed to a number of different people. Some people thought it was Eleanor Roosevelt. Some people have said, no, it's Marilyn Monroe. Other people kind of quote it to the most famous of all authors, unknown, all right? So people have wondered where this came from or how old it is. Well, it actually is a relatively new phrase. Uh, it came out of the 1970s. It was a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, uh, Laurel Ulrich, and she actually wrote this for a technical journal related to history called the American Quarterly. And she was tapping into this idea that just says, you know what, when we look throughout history, the women that we so often note in that context were ones that kind of broke the boundaries of the life that they were living in. They went against the flow of the way the world was. They challenged the status quo and the norms that were expected of women. And from that, they changed the world. And honestly, if you're any casual reader of history, that is what you're going to see. And part of that is just this reality that when you scan the whole terrain of human existence, you find that oftentimes women just had the cards stacked against them in a unique way. And so they had to do things in such a way that they resisted the pull to just uh, be docile, be quiet. And they said, no, I'm going to stand up and do it different. And I'm going to challenge things to hopefully move things forward. And in that, sometimes you were going to have to bend the rules or break the expectations to get those things accomplished. And that's why the phrase exists. But see, I see this even in the book of Ruth. If there's any place, in fact, that I see it, it's certainly in a place like the book of Ruth. We see in that story a group of women, Ruth in particular, that didn't always behave according to standard that sometimes stepped in and bent or even broke the rules, but for a greater cause. Now, here's the thing that's interesting is, is it starts off, right? The first group to break the rules weren't the women. It was actually the men who break the rules. So back in chapter one, we learned about this family that travels from the terrain of Israel and they go to Moab, their sworn enemy, a pagan environment, contrary to God, but they're starving to death. And so they go. And it's in that space that the men break the rules. So the father okays for the sons to marry Moabite women. The law is clear. You don't marry a Moabite, not to the 10th generation. This is a bad thing. But these boys, they go, well, we need somebody in our lives. And they marry these Moabite girls. And it's a breaking of God's standard for the people of Israel. But they're desperate. It's just what life is. And so they do it. And no sooner do they break the rules than everybody starts to die off. And so dad dies off. And then after a decade, the husbands die off. And, and so now all the men are gone in the story. And all that is left then are these women in a patriarchal environment that if you didn't have a man, you did not have value. You didn't have security. You didn't have prosperity. You didn't have opportunity. You didn't have hope. You didn't have a future. Right? We learned about the fact that once Naomi was a widow and her sons were gone, in her mind, she's a zero. She's a nobody. She offers nothing. And her culture would have said, yeah, that's pretty much the case. Right? You're just out of luck. You have nothing to contribute because you're not going to have any more sons. And so you're on your own. You're destitute. And then worse than that, you've got two other women in your life, but they're pagan Moabites and they're barren and they're poor and they're refugees like you now. Everything in the story for the women is crumbling and falling apart in chapter one. But there is this tenacity within the story as well. These women are going to overcome some tremendous odds. 
But in that first chapter and going into chapter two, they're almost like property where nobody is claiming the rights of ownership at this point. That's their problem, right? And if anybody actually took these women on, they would be more of a liability than an asset based on the way the culture saw it. Because again, the women didn't ever have children in those 10 years. And so they're considered to be barren. And with that, why would you make the investment? So all the way around, the story just has this, man, it's going so wrong. But here's what I love about it. And I, I, I think why it mirrors the stuff of Jesus so much, right? Because I find that what Jesus loves to do and what God delights in doing is taking the least likely people, the people that are the lowest or the most broken or the most unlikely. And he says, I'm going to use the least of these to do a thing that nobody can do in their own strength, but I'm going to do it through them to model something greater and more profound. And that's kind of the essence of Ruth. She's somebody that when you look at the story, she's going to prove that there is something more powerful than keeping the letter of the law. She's going to show that there is this way of love, this way of the spirit of a thing, or what we have learned throughout the book, this word in Hebrew, this idea of hesed, right? This is a really, uh, it's an anchoring word, right, in the story. So it's this idea of a neighborly type love, so intense and so intent on the good of another, it will sacrifice oneself for their good. That's our hesed word. I want to bring it back to that because everything in the story hinges on that. If you don't see that, you miss the story. The story is all about, I put you before me. Your needs are more important than my needs. That's hesed. That's the spirit of the law. That's the essence of love in this story. And so what we see with Ruth is she's so committed to this, she's willing to bend or break the rules. The first time is in chapter two. Right? Remember we learned about the gleaning law where the owner of a field didn't glean the corners of the field and then from that the poor and the needy could come and they can get the scraps off the ground. They could dumpster dive and get what they could get and, and then move on along. But, but she rolls in and she got, brings this challenge. She's like, well, well, what if I didn't just get the scraps from the corners, but, but what if I'm allowed to go out into the middle of the field and after the men have cut down the stalks that I can gather before the women even gather and then from that I can bring the food home, not for myself, but for my mother-in-law that has nothing. See, the gleaning law didn't require that. But she just takes this initiative and pitches the idea. It's bold, it's tenacious, it's outside of the cultural norm, but it doesn't matter. So she's already kind of messing with the rules. And then we saw in chapter three last week where she messes with the rules more. Her mother-in-law says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get fixed up, take a bath, put on some nice clothes, smell nice, and go in the dead of night to try to pick up a guy to become your husband. And hopefully by morning, it's done. And it's the shotgun wedding idea. So Naomi isn't expecting a whole lot from Ruth. She's just like, just at best, you can secure your future. I won't have a future, but you'll have a future. Go do this. And then she rolls in and she begins to mess with the rules again. And she messes with this kinsman redeemer law. She messes with this Levite law. This is what Ruth does. And literally she takes these two laws in the Old Testament, tears them off the hinges of the Old Testament, redeploys them and remounts them in a new way. And so she's looking at Boaz and she's like, I got this idea, right? This is not my mother-in-law. This is just me putting things together and trying to come up with something kind of clever and creative. Here's what I think we should do, Boaz. I think you should marry me. 
And in marrying me, we're going to exercise the Leverite law that says, uh, you know what, you were the brother of Elimelech, and therefore you marry me because Elimelech died. Now, that's not what happened. So she's already messing with the rule. The rule is like the next brother in line marries the girl, but there's no next brother in line. So she's like, how about we go with the spirit of this? And in the spirit of it, you marry me as though Elimelech was your brother, make it work that way. And then also you're going to do the kinsman redeemer law, which is you're going to buy the property from Naomi so that you can secure it for the family because that's the lever, right? Or that's the, the kinsman redeemer law. It's this idea that says, you know what? If a family member is hurting, you sell the property to the nearest family member. They secure it for the family until later down the road, you can buy it back if that's so possible. So Ruth is working with all of these things, but she's moving them out of their categories. Because here's the thing, keeping the culture in mind, um, that property that Naomi has that used to be her husband's, she has no authority to sell that. She doesn't have a man in her life to make the transaction because that's the way the rules work, right? So men broker the deals. She has no sons, no husband. So she's sitting on property that she can't sell. She can't pass it on to anybody else. So she's super stuck. And so Ruth is trying to figure out a way, well, how could I create a link here so that there would be a man that could sort of support us for the purpose of the selling of the property to secure Naomi? I'll do it at my own cost. I'll do it at my own travail. I will give up my own rights or my own future for the sake of my mother-in-law by trying to put this whole thing together. That's, that's what we've learned in the book. So this is Hesed up to this point. This is somebody trying to figure out a way when the, the, the conditions are terrible and they're not working for you at all. But the reason she's fixated on this is this idea that says, you know what? I want to love my mother-in-law in Hesed. So she's doing it to secure a future for Naomi, to care for Naomi at the cost of herself, and to practice this, this, this spirit of a thing of loving your neighbor beyond your own securities. Now, what's crazy to me about this is not only is this something that's challenging or risky for Ruth, but this is also something that for Boaz would require something of him. Because if you take these laws and you put them together and you understand what Ruth is asking, what she's saying in essence is, Boaz, here's this, this thought I have. And remember when she came to Boaz, she didn't say, hey, will you do this? She flat out just says, this is what we're doing. Put your cloak over me and this is what we're doing. So she's pretty bold, right? So she's coming to him and saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your own hard-earned money I want you under these two rules to buy this property from Naomi, even though we have nobody to broker it, but we'll figure that out in time. I want you to buy the property with your own hard-earned money. And then I want you to marry me in the process of that. And if by chance, for some crazy reason, I actually have a son, that son will become the heir of Naomi's family. And that property that you bought with your hard-earned money, he will get for free and not have to pay it back to you because I've locked these two laws together. Doesn't that sound great? That's what she's pitching here. Spend your own money, use your own time, risk your own future. And from that, if there's an heir that is born, that's a male that comes to Naomi, you lose everything you just invested into. Let's do it. Right? Who pitches that stuff? Ruth. And who's dumb enough to go along with it? Boaz. All right. So here's where we start with point one in your notes. Getting tricked out of a relationship. Some people get tricked into marriages, tricked into relationships, that kind of thing. Well, Boaz has a different task today. He needs to trick somebody out of a relationship. So it starts in chapter four, verse one. 
So as Boaz went to the town gate and he took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer, remember there's a closer family member that has the right to the property under the kinsman law. So it's just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him. He's like, Kevin, come here. We don't know the guy's name. So I'm gonna call him Kevin today. It's simpler. So Kevin, come here. Sit down, my friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. So the city gate is just where things happen, right? This is where gossip happens, news happens, politics happens, uh, even cutting deals, right? Property deals, whatever else. This is where it happens. And so Boaz looks like he's just chilling, just waiting, right? And then our friend Kevin here shows up and he's the guy that has the first right of refusal. So he has the right to actually make an offer on the property and Boaz knows this and so they need to have a conversation about it. And so the guy just happens to stroll up and Boaz says, hey, let's talk. I'm sure this guy's thinking it's going to be pretty chill until verse two. It says, then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Can you imagine like you're down at CC? Somebody's like, hey, come here. Let's just sit down for a minute. You're like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, city council, come here really quick. I feel like an intervention. Like, whoa, who just drew the people's court here? Like, it's just this whole sudden event that became kind of tense or intense really quick, right? So I'm sure Kevin's wondering like, what is going on? Verse three, it says, Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know, a Naomi who came back from Moab, she's selling the land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about this so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And so I love this because Boaz is a little bit thuggish here, right? Because if you give too much time to this, people will really start to think it out. And if they really think it out, there's some other intricacies in here and he doesn't want that to happen. So he's like, he's like a general manager at the trade deadline. He's like, hey, you got 30 seconds. You want the player or not? If you're not, I'm taking him to Philly. Uh, like that's the intensity of the scene, right? So he's trying to move this as quickly as he possibly can. And so there's a level of shock and awe. But in this, here's the other part. Boaz is now also bending or breaking the rules. Because what I just said, right? Naomi has no ability to sell her own land to the next family member. She's legally out. She's the zero. There are no males to sell off the property. And if given enough time, the property will simply default to the next nearer kinsman with no money exchange whatsoever. Naomi will just be out the land. It's like, sorry, it's not really yours. You're not male. It's not yours. And so eventually it's just going to fall to this guy anyway. And if given enough time, the guy's going to put these pieces together. But Noah Boaz doesn't want that amount of time to pass, so the guy puts the pieces together. So he's putting the guy in this intense situation right on the spot. Come on, dude, do you want it or not? Let's go, what, what's gonna happen here? Here's the other thing that he's doing that is so genius and a bit bending the rules. Um, he's playing the role of the male broker for Naomi, even though legally he's not allowed to. So he's giving the sense of uh, investing Naomi with property rights that she doesn't have because he's speaking for her in, an, in, a, in a position that legally isn't his to do, but he doesn't care and he's just driving this along. So he puts this guy on the spot, wants it done today. I wanna know if you're not doing it, I'm doing it. Let's get to this. Let's close this deal, right? So it's pretty simple. Kevin, you in or out? You playing or you passing? Well, Kevin says, I'm gonna play. Says the man replied, all right. I'll redeem it. Uh-oh, Rappy. Okay. 
So maybe it doesn't seem like such a good plan, right? Like maybe you thought the guy was just going to back out, but he's interested. And it makes sense. Because for this kinsman family member to redeem the property, suddenly he's going to double his land. He's going to have more estate to pass on his inheritance to his kids. So for him, he's thinking like, man, I, I get to get more property? Sure, I'll buy it. Why not? I'm all in. But then Boaz kind of brings up the fine print. Verse five, Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land of Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite. I'm sure he put a big emphasis on that. The Moabite widow, you know, the poor refugee, pagan-esque Ruth. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And so now the fortunes change, right? One minute, the kinsman redeemer Kevin is thinking like, this is a sweet deal. And the next minute he has to make a decision. And the decision is he has to go, okay, what are my odds here? She was barren. She's never had offspring. If I buy the land and marry the girl and she doesn't have a son, I keep the property. And the only burden I have is trying to make a second wife happy. I'm sure that would be easy. So he thinks, okay, I I could do that. But if the barren woman has a wee bairn and the wee bairn is a boy, that boy will take the property that I purchased free and clear and they will take it over in the name of Naomi and Ruth's family. And I'll be out everything I made the investment in. So it's like a 50-50. It's like a coin toss, right? Like what does he decide? No, he knows instantly. This is a bad deal. I'm pulling out. I don't want it. Verse six, he says, I can't redeem it. Land, yes, I don't want the girl, not the risk of that. He says, because this might endanger my own estate, you redeem the land, I cannot do that. So as the old knight says in uh, Indiana Jones in the last crusade, you have chosen wisely, right? Like he's backing out of this thing. He's like, no, this is not good for what I want to do. This is just going to cost me potentially, I'm out. What's great about this is it sets up Boaz to walk away with everything and a spare sandal. That's point two in your notes. His ability to walk away with everything and a spare sandal. Verse seven, now in those days, there was a custom in Israel for anyone referring or transferring a right of purchase to remove the sandal and place it in the hand of the other party. This publicly validated the transaction so that the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, here, you buy the land. I've decided on the Facebook trading post, this is what we should use, all right? Just as a freebie, man. Like every time you go on there to buy something, if you don't say sold, if you say interested, or you send it to your friend, you get criticized. Like, no, you say sold or nothing. We should just do a shoe emoji. That would clean it all up. So I like this plan, right? Maybe we do all deals this way. So the guy gives Boaz a sandal. And it says in verse nine, then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought Naomi all, or I've bought from Naomi rather, all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Malon. And with that, the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon. So remember, we weren't sure who was married to her, who? Well, now here in chapter four, we know that of the two boys, sick and puny doomed, she was married to sick, all right? That's why he died. And so he is taking her to be his wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses of this today. And so there's even an act of faith here like, hey, the person that has never been able to have a child, maybe we'll have a child. 
Verse 11, then the elders and all the people that were standing there at the gate replied, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah from whom all the nations of Israel have descended. I love this because again, here's this woman who was severed from her roots. Here is this poor, pagan, refugee, unwanted individual. And now the whole town, that wee little town of Bethlehem that we've heard so much about, that's the town. And they're all rising up and they're saying, she's the one. This is so great. May she be a nation builder like our ancestors have been. So they are literally grafting her into their community and into their heritage. And they're saying, may you actually have an offspring that continues the trajectory of blessing our nation, our people, and bringing prosperity to our land. That is what they are now chanting out here at the end of the story. And then they say to Boaz, may you prosper and may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of her ancestor, of our ancestor, rather Perez, the son of Tamar in Judah. I love this because again, if you want to see another woman who broke the rules, it's Tamar. Go back and read her story. Her story is real simple. Her father-in-law was denying her the ability to continue on the family lineage, so she dresses as a prostitute, seduces him, gets him to impregnate her, and from that continues the family line, and God says, she's faithful. The Bible is a messy book sometimes, right? You're like, what is that? It's amazing. God just sometimes says, you know what? I see beyond the clumsy, broken, awkward rule-bending that you're engaged in, and I see faithfulness in the midst of that. That's the story of Ruth as well. She is being faithful even in the messiness, but it's faithfulness that God rewards. Number three in your notes, when God's faithfulness peels back the odds. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. I want you to notice in that moment, what happens is Boaz forfeits all of the property rights that he just spent his money to buy. So the very thing they invested into, which was if by chance God will give her a son and that son will be able to reclaim the name of Naomi and the family, it's all gonna come together in the perfect plan. God makes the plan happen. And from that, he is divested of everything that he invested into from a property perspective, right? That's the sacrifice of Boaz. It's beautiful. But he did this to become his extended brother's keeper. Right? Goes beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, and from that he gives Naomi purpose and a future. Now here's the thing I want to say about this. Um, if you think about this in terms of it being a legitimate real story, which it is, um, this is still a woman that lost her husband and lost her sons. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, I think sometimes we read stories like Job or Lady Job here of Naomi and we go, oh, well, they had a fresh start. That means the whole past is behind them and they don't even think about it anymore. No, that's not how life works. Ruth reminds us that sometimes life is tragic and hard and there's loss and there's pain and that pain doesn't necessarily go away. You don't just forget about your past when the future starts to look bright, but you can learn from the past as you face a brighter future. And that's what's happening here. So it's like, man, this is a new beginning in Bethlehem. Finally, after a lot of pain, the pain hasn't gone. But God is being faithful to use the pain in beautiful new ways in the lives of these people. And that's true to this story. 
So the new beginning gets underway. And in that new beginning, you see number four in your notes, the gospel according to Ruth. It says, And the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Seven was the kind of the number of completion, right, in this particular period. And so for her to be better than seven sons, they're literally saying, wow, the barren, poor, refugee Mobite is better than seven Jewish men. Right? She's restored this idea of valor and virtue to the people of the land. That's an amazing thing coming from this singular woman that would have been seen as the least of these by all other standards. And then from this, you see the final act of hesed on the part of Ruth. In verse 16, it says, Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her own breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again. Here's what you have to understand here. Ruth has not provided a grandson to Naomi. Ruth has provided a third son to Naomi. In fact, the simplest way I can put it is Ruth takes her one and only son and gives him away. This is the gospel according to Ruth. Right? That's what she does. She divests herself of her parental purpose and in this final act of love for her mother-in-law says, you take him, he is your son, he is your heir, he will secure you, he will make your future great, he's yours, not mine. I love you so much, I give even this to you. That is the gospel. He will ease your bitterness, he will restore your fortunes and your honor. And so from this, it says, and they named him Obed. Remember we talked about that names mean things? His biological father, Boaz, means strength is in him. And his legal father now, Elimelech, who passed away a decade or more ago, his name is My God is King. And I love that because both of those names are powerful and strong. And we go, wow, I like those. Well, those are like, those are manly names right there. But see, the name Obed is probably the strongest of all the names, the most fortified of all the names. Obed means one who serves. I think that's so beautiful considering that this whole story has been about sacrificial service for the good of others. And so who is Obed? So they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of of David. Yeah, that David. That King David guy, you know, the mightiest, most renowned of all the kings of Israel, the archetype of the coming Messiah that would change everything. Yeah, it's that David. We're looking at the grandfather of that king. And I love it because he comes from a lineage of a poor, barren, pagan refugee who broke the rules and changed the world. Not through her might or her power or her wealth. She did it through love and through service and through sacrifice. I mean, that's the stuff of Hesed again. That's, that's the stuff of Jesus. I love this quote from uh, Caroline uh, Jocelyn. She says, but the legacy of Bethlehem's greatness can be traced back earlier to, to, to that of King David, 
back to the dark times, the tumultuous times of the era where the judges ruled. It all began when a Moabite immigrant crossed the border into Israel, made a fierce commitment to live as God's child. She brought a fresh perspective to the Mosaic law. She refused to settle for mere obedience to the letter of the law and its vast spiritual possibilities as they lay before her. Hesed transforms legality into sacrificial love, gives life amidst despair, and draws one deeper into the heart of God. I read that and I think, man, that really does look a lot like Jesus. Like what she does looks like Jesus. And then what I love about that is when I fast forward to the gospel of Matthew chapter one, you see a list of the ancestors of Jesus. And in that list are four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And if you look at those four women, their lives were messy and oftentimes they were at the mercy of the men in their lives and yet they were faithful and they were focused and they operated in the context and even sometimes they broke and bent the rules but for greater faithfulness. And then what I really love about that is that God is faithful in return. And to our friend Ruth here, it's interesting to me how she's commemorated because, again, she gives up her son, gives the son to Naomi. Naomi is now the mother. But when Matthew writes this gospel, what does he say? He says, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. See, even though Naomi was the mother in that era, it's like God forever commemorated Ruth's activity. And he says, you know what? Eternally, though, you're the mother of this child and it showed your faithfulness and it showed your love and it showed my gospel let's go ahead and pray together Jesus I thank you for messy stories like I I just I find myself gravitating to those so often because I find that our own lives are messy like there's so little ability to keep everything clean and nice and tidy and yet what these stories teach us whether it be Rahab's story Tamar's story Bathsheba's story or Ruth's story is that you see the heart in these things. You see the deeper motive of selflessness, of sacrifice for the good of another at the cost of oneself. That is a powerful thing. And so I pray, Jesus, that we will be faithful to you, that we will long to do the tough things in your mercy and grace, and that from that we grow more in you and others are touched by you. So Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in your name. Amen.